What is up, my dudes and dudettes? Welcome back to the Year of Plenty podcast, the show to bring you closer to your food source and learn the skills so that every year can be a year of plenty for you. As always, I'm your host, Poldy Wieland, and today's episode is a conversation with my friend Jay Gullinello, who is a nutritional therapist, ancestrally-based practitioner, speaker, and researcher. Jay was actually one of my early podcast guests, and it was so great to reconnect with him for a second appearance on the podcast. I do need to mention quick that the internet connection when we were recording this kind of went in and out at the beginning on Jay's side, and... Uh, you know, there's a few hiccups here and there, but I promise it'll get better after a few minutes and uh, definitely stick with us because it's totally worth it. Our chat you're going to hear today is all about glyphosate and glyphosate-based herbicides like Roundup. And this is something that Jay has researched extensively. So there is tons of controversy around glyphosate. Many people, researchers, and even governments are quite alarmed about its effects on humans, wildlife, and the environment as a whole. And you know, some places around the world have even labeled it a carcinogen. And then there are others, other scientists, other groups, and of course the corporations that are selling it and manufacturing it that claim that glyphosate is safe. But there's a lot of science that it has potential health outcomes and definitely environmental risks. And it's still sold on the market to farmers and homeowners alike. And to this day, glyphosate remains the most sprayed herbicide in the world. You'll hear in this episode that both Jay and I are concerned about glyphosate safety, especially since it's found in many food products. Yes, even the real food ingredients like the vegetables that it's sprayed on. And you can also get exposure from it through our tap water. But the whole point of this episode is to shed some light on our concerns and go into some of the science as well as the biochemistry behind glyphosate. So as always, just for a quick episode overview so you know what to expect, we kind of start out with a primer on glyphosate, like what it even is, and then we get into its history, its usage, and its persistence in the environment. Then you can't really talk about glyphosate without talking about how it targets what's called the shikimate pathway in plants, bacteria, and fungi. You'll learn more about that in a bit here. We get into how we get exposed to glyphosate through food, water, and the air that we breathe. Glyphosate's effects on humans and the potential health outcomes from low-dose exposure, which is something that not a lot of people talk about. Along those lines, we talk about how glyphosate impacts the gut microbiome, the mitochondria, your cells, and testosterone levels. Next up, we get into the missing signs about other compounds that are found alongside glyphosate in herbicide formulations. So there's a decent amount of science on glyphosate, but there's really not much science or even information on other compounds that companies are putting in the actual herbicide formulations. So the whole point of this part or segment in the podcast is kind of just to shed some light on, you know, what else might be in these herbicides that isn't really being studied. And then finally, we get into some actionable tips for you to lower your glyphosate exposure. So lots of great info in this episode, and there's a lot more in here that, you know, I didn't highlight now. But before we get started, I want to share a quick word about our sponsor, Montana Block. Montana Block is offering a 15% discount with the code Year of Plenty, all lowercase letters, on all of their handcrafted wooden kitchen products like their end grain butcher blocks, magnetic knife holders, and more. 
Have you ever wanted a kitchen tool that not only looks stunning, but can also last a lifetime? Well, let me introduce you to Montana Block, a small family-owned business that creates exceptional wooden kitchen products. I'm talking about functional, high-quality, and unique end grain butcher blocks and more. What sets Montana Block apart from others? Well, they pour their heart and soul into every single product. Each piece is meticulously crafted by hand using all American-made materials. How cool is that? And these aren't just ordinary cutting boards. They're kitchen masterpieces designed to withstand the test of time. Now listen closely because this offer is really too good to resist. Montana Block is graciously granting you guys a fantastic 15% discount on their entire collection. Just use the code Year of Plenty at checkout on your website, which is mtblock.com, and treat yourself with a quality cutting board or one of their awesome wooden magnetic knife holders. If you take advantage of this offer, some of the money will kick back to the Year of Plenty podcast, so this is a great way for you to help support the show. And one more thing, Montana Block is committed to your satisfaction. If you ever need a repair, they're there to lend a helping hand, ensuring your beloved cutting board stays by your side throughout your entire culinary journey. And, you know, if you take good care of it, you can even pass it on to your kids or a friend or another family member. So why settle for mass-produced potentially toxic, mediocre cutting boards when you can embrace the artisanal brilliance of Montana Block. Head on over to emptyblock.com today and remember to use the code Year of Plenty to claim your exclusive 15% off. Okay, now if you haven't already, hit that follow button so you never miss another episode. Leave a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. If you send me a screenshot of your review to my Instagram, which is at Wheeland, or my email address, which is theyearofplenty at gmail.com, I'm going to send you a free download to my food preservation guide. And also, don't forget to share an episode with your friends. Word of mouth is still the best way for a show like this to grow. Okay, that's it for the intro. Get ready to learn from Jay Gulinello. So, Jay, welcome back to the show, man. How have you been? I have been great. How have you been? It's been a long time. Yeah, it's been a long time. You were one of my early podcast guests, and that was an awesome episode. We connected a long time ago, and since then, you've done quite the journey in the nutrition world, which I'm super excited about. But, uh, yeah, since... Since we talked last, I moved out to Montana, so I'm in Montana in Bozeman now and kind of pursuing the wild foods lifestyle out here as much as possible. A big part of why I moved out here was being able to hunt elk and hopefully achieve my goal of, you know, no having to buy no meat from the grocery store. And I'm really close now. Like this year is the closest I've come and we haven't bought between the two of us, you know, my girlfriend and me, we haven't bought meat in months now. So that's super exciting. That's amazing. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, it's probably the only, I've only been to Montana once and I was in Bozeman uh, for the Ancestral Health Symposium. And that was in Bozeman, I think, I want to say 2000, summer of 2018. So that was, I actually drove cross country from the West, from the East Coast and uh, fell in love. I'm so jealous. I, I really thought for five days, I was like, I could, uh, I could live here. Yeah. I could definitely live here. Uh, so good for you, man. I'm I'm so happy to hear that. I think I was such an early guest. I, I If I remember correctly, back then you were only doing audio. You weren't even doing video, if I yep. remember correctly. Yep, just audio. So, um, it was like over yeah, the phone. Yeah, good for you. Almost, yeah. It's, it's, 
it's great to see you doing that, you know, and, and doing more uh, in the professional area and, you know, in, in terms of podcasting, because we need voices like yours. We need these long form conversations to dig into topics that are, uh, you know, somewhat controversial. And sometimes people don't like having these conversations because they get uncomfortable and it makes people think twice about the food they buy. And so, so cheers to you. And I'm, I'm glad you're out there. Hopefully you're, you guys are happy and I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. I appreciate that. Yeah, definitely happy. Still keeping on doing the podcast. I'm, I'm not planning on stopping it anytime soon. And I'm happy to, to see you, uh, now on Substack too, and all these other platforms more than just Instagram. And, um, yeah, I mean, you've been absolutely killing it the last three years. I always follow your posts and whatnot. So same, I can say the same about you. Well, I appreciate that you are, I mean, you are one of the original people who started following me for whatever reason. You know, yeah. I, I, when I started Instagram, I like to tell people I studied, I started it when I started my master's program in nutrition. And I just, the idea was to just take people along for the ride and, you know, surprising to me, a whole bunch of people were interested in what I had to say, which still shocks me, you know, to this day. And, uh, but I, I find it flattering. And so, and, but, you know, as uh, some of these major platforms become, there's some things you can't say. And so that's why, like you said, I, I went over to Substack because I just wanted a little bit more freedom to talk with the audience. And that's been really fun doing like a mini podcast with another uh, practitioner in Canada. And we just sort of, do short little 20, 30 minute episodes on, on any kind of topic that, that the audience is interested in. And that's been a lot of fun. So yeah, it's, um, yeah, like I said, it's, it's great to reconnect. And the topic of glyphosate is, uh, is a big one. So I know we have a, our work cut out for us today. Yeah, And that's, uh, <laughs> it's definitely one of those topics to where you need like a podcast, like a long form conversation about it because, you know, I did some of my own research going into this and, it's just wild. I mean, you were just telling me before we clicked the record button that uh, you basically find yourself doing research on glyphosate once a week because there's so much out there. So it, it, it's yeah. definitely a big topic. But I'm, you know, I, I haven't covered it really much in a podcast, and I know you've done a ton of research. So I'm excited to get get into it with you. And for those listening right now, we'll get into what glyphosate is in a bit. We'll start out with like a little primer uh, if you've never heard of it, and like the idea is not to really scare anyone or freak you out too much but more like you know educate you and make you more mindful of potential toxins uh, that affect us humans that can be find, found on our food and uh, what some of these toxins like glyphosate can do to the environment and also maybe point out like the the nuances in science right and why we shouldn't always just you know trust the words of the experts or the big corporations that are involved in our food system without questioning it because we have a responsibility to look into things and even question the things that the experts say in my opinion Ugh. well i think we've seen that over the last few years the best thing you can do for yourself is to always question you know stay curious that's the foundation of the scientific method it starts with questioning and Bingo. curiosity so anyone anyone who tells you otherwise isn't actually speaking very scientifically people that say trust the science is actually it's actually the antithesis of science so you always want to keep that open mind and um and just so your audience knows you know a lot of the things i like to wear my bias on my sleeve and i always come from the from the point of view that if it's man-made it has to start off guilty until proven innocent so a lot of the things you'll hear mm -hmm. me say in fact some of the pushback i'll get when posting about things like glyphosate is people will say well this wasn't shown in a in a human study or this wasn't shown in a you know uh 
in a in a study that was you know a large enough population or or you're using words like might or could and and my response to this is yes this is how science is done we don't make proclamations in science and we err on the side of caution especially when you're talking about foods or or I should say in this case a molecule that's going to be added to the food supply it's very important that we take that approach we don't have to do that with everything but when it comes to your your life I feel like my my bias is guilty until proven innocent. We've got to make sure it's completely safe before we just assume that it is. So I love that point, and I hope your audience understands everything I say today will be coming from that bias. And if you don't share that bias, that's perfectly fine. But my bias is always I'm looking for the things that are wrong because I don't want to find out the hard way is, yeah. is my approach. Yeah, you don't want to find out decades down the road, which that's how it usually works with these kind of things and human health and just a complex system biology and and us humans especially and we you know to set the stage i mean you can go on youtube right now and you can find videos of in the old days when they used to spray ddt the the pesticide they used to spray ddt on kids like yep. I, there are videos i've watched where kids are in a public swimming pool in the summer and they're literally spraying them down yeah, with the ddt those. because right right because they didn't realize the the toxicity. Now, I would say, well, you've designed this product to kill insects. So did, did anybody ask the question if it's dangerous to humans? Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But now, decades later, that looks crazy because we know that it's linked to things like breast cancer, cardiometabolic disease, and it can even trend, it can even travel through generations that grandmothers exposed to DDT had issues with their so where you're talking generational issues in some research so that to set the stage you know once upon a time they had ads that said ddt is right for me you know and they were making and you were considered sort of on the fringe if you expressed any concern about this so i think taking that as a as a lesson as we move forward with something like glyphosate because we have the same issue now some people call me crazy for asking these questions and i just say listen i'm just being pragmatic and i just want to raise these questions and have a robust debate about it so that, I think that that's a nice way to set the stage because we've been through this before, essentially. Yeah, 100%. So let's start out by just, you know, giving a primer on glyphosate. Like, what is glyphosate even and what is it or was it intended to do? Uh, glyphosate is, essentially, it's a, it's a glycine molecule. Glycine is an amino acid. It's a glycine mo molecule with a methylphosphonyl group attached to the in the molecule. So that's like the biochemistry of it. Um, it's actually called N-phosphonylmethylglycine. That's the actual chemical name for glyphosate. Um, and it's the most utilized herbicide in agriculture. Uh, some of the numbers are hard to find. I know you sent me a map, which was interesting. Uh, still just, they're sort of estimates. Yeah. Um, so I'll just go through some of the numbers that I have to give people an idea of how much is used. Um, uh, in 1995, 51.3 million kilograms or 113 million pounds of glyphosate were used. Uh, since 1974 in the U.S., they say over 1.6 billion kilograms have been used. But uh, a 2016 paper in Environmental Sciences Europe said that the EPA has not reported the data of pesticide use since 2007. And the 2021 paper in the journal Foods say that no data really exists on glyphosate usage after 2014. And I can confirm, I have looked through multiple papers and I cannot find a real specific number anymore. 
And that could be because in 2000, glyphosate went off patent. Mm. And now most of it's made in China, which is a whole other issue because they don't have some of the same standards. So they may be manufacturing glyphosate with other additives and we don't really know. Uh, so that's concerning. Uh, but yeah, so it's used worldwide. Um, essentially, uh, it's designed to disrupt a specific pathway in bacteria called the shikimate pathway. That's what it's designed to do. And it's an amino acid um, synthesis pathway, and it blocks this pathway, which causes the bacteria to die. And the reason that people say it's not dangerous in humans is because humans don't possess the enzyme that glyphosate targets. Right. Now, the nuance there is that we have an entire microbiome <laughs> full of bacteria and according to recent research, roughly 54% of core bacteria are sensitive to glyphosate. So while, wow. the, while the detractors of this say, well, not all uh, bacteria possess the shikimate pathway, that is true. But according to most recent research uh, out of Finland, actually, they said about 54% of the gut bacteria are likely sensitive. So at least half the gut bacteria are sensitive to glyphosate, which is why it's a it's a funny way around that problem to say it's not dangerous to humans. Okay, maybe not directly. But there is a there is a deep connection between our microbiome, our brain, the gut brain access, all these things. So when we start messing with the microbiome, I start getting concerned that indirectly it is going to be dangerous for humans. And indeed, a lot of the research we'll talk about today does indicate that's that is a potential. Right. Yeah. And that's that's the craziest part to me because uh, the claim was like like you said, it only affects plants, and so there's no concern to humans at all. But there's from my research that I did like. Plants have this shikimate pathway, but also, like you said, the mm -hmm. bacteria and then even fungi, right? Mm -hmm. So all, yes. all things that also live with us humans in our microbiomes, besides the plants, maybe. I hope no one's growing plants under skin and whatnot. But um, the bacteria and the <laughs> fungi. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's just this, this pathway that you need to create all these essential amino acids, right? And that just gets blocked, and the enzyme gets blocked by the glyphosate, and then the plants die. And that's how they they use they use it uh, on on the plants to kill them. And Monsanto, people listening, I'm sure have heard of Monsanto because of you know their role in monocrop agriculture and GMO corn and whatnot. They're now owned by Bayer, a German company, and they're the ones that brought this to the market for the first time under the name Roundup. And a lot of people have probably used that in their on their lawn uh, on weeds and whatnot, and um, mm -hmm. yeah, and, and that's the whole thing. You know, Monsanto and with other companies together, they developed uh, GMO crops that are resistant to glyphosate, right? So that when they spray mm -hmm. glyphosate on these fields, everything dies, plant-wise, and, and bacteria and fungi, besides the um, the gene manipulated plants that can survive it right and i'm actually convinced that that's the ultimate reason that glyphosate exists i don't think i think they knew well we'll talk about this later but they did know some of the toxicity of glyphosate my personal theory on this is that it was the drive to get the genetically modified seeds because that essentially represents food as intellectual property Right. So it was never really about selling the glyphosate for money. It's now off patent. It's been off patent for over 20 years. So that's not necessarily where I think the moneymaker was. It was in the seeds that would be genetically modified to be resistant to the glyphosate. And the timeline, there's a whole side issue we don't have to get into, but the timeline works out that way that it, I think glyphosate was being 
the, the harms were being hidden long enough for the genetically modified seeds to be developed and put into market. And now if we find out that glyphosate is dangerous, they don't really care because the GMO seeds are already out there. And that was the and and indeed actually Monsanto has sued farmers for using genetically modified seeds. So I think that was the ultimate sort of end around that that Monsanto was was doing. I don't have definitive proof, but there's a whole bunch of anecdotal and speculative evidence that says, yeah, this is probably what they were trying to do. So that's just a, a little side note on glyphosate itself. I don't think that was actually the moneymaker. I think it was the seed. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense to me because a lot of farmers, like a lot of these seeds are also hybrid hybrids, which means you mm -hmm. can't re you can't harvest the seeds and replant them the next year. Right. And I know they're also like suing farmers and going after farmers um, you know, who are like because the farmers have to sign contracts with them, and then if they try to use any other seeds but theirs, they get in a whole lot of trouble and whatnot. Um, so yeah, I, I think it reminded me of right. What you just said reminded me of the uh, you know planned obsolescence of electronics, right? Like you can't, <laughs> like with the seed, how you just can't. You have to keep buying more seed. Uh, it just made me think of you know iPhones and things like that that are designed to die after a couple of years. <laughs> Yeah, seems like uh, everything's kind of going that way. I mean, that, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm all for um, uh, capitalism and whatnot, but mm -hmm. in that way, it's maybe going a bit array. Um, yeah, yeah, I would agree. So we will get back to the episode in just a bit. I just wanted to jump in real quick to let you guys know how you can best support the Year of Plenty podcast. If you get value from the show, please consider doing a monthly donation on Patreon for as little as $2 a month. Otherwise, if you're more into the one-time donations, you can leave a donation for however much you think is fair over at my Buy Me A Coffee page. Both platforms will be linked in the episode description. Also, please share an episode with your friends or on social media. Doing that will let other foodies like you and I discover the show and come along for the ride. And finally, if you want to connect with me personally, head over to my Instagram, which is at Wheeland. Follow me over there and let's get a conversation started. Okay, that's it. Thank you so much for your support. Let's get back to the episode. So with glyphosate also, I heard this, I heard you talk about this in one of your podcasts that it's like a chelating, a metal chelating agent. And I had to look all that yes. up and a descaling agent. So basically that means yeah. it's designed to strip minerals from, from things, right? And it was in, initially used to strip like minerals and calcium out of pipes, like residential pipes and whatnot. Yeah. And then in 1970, uh, Dr from Hans, a Monsanto biochemist discovered that it was useful as an herbicide. But but your point is right. It, originally, it was a descaling agent. Uh, so what a chelator is, you, you can think of it as a, uh, it's like a magnet almost, like an attractor of metals. It's not magnetic, but it's a, it's a biochemical attractor of what are known as plus two cations, these minerals that have a, a plus two charge. So that's things like calcium and magnesium and manganese and zinc and iron. And so this worked really well, actually, as a descaling agent. But when you when you think about minerals in the human body and their and the need for minerals as cofactors in enzymatic reactions, and and when we when we eat spinach, you know, we look we look it up on the you know on a, on a food table to find out how much calcium is in it. Uh, that's on paper, but if it's been sprayed with glyphosate, you have to consider how much of the glyphosate has now bound to that calcium making it unusable and in fact i found a um 
a long time ago when I was first starting to do some of this research, I came across a, a video. It was a it was a pro a pro glyphosate video. In other words, it was a it was somebody might might have been even from Monsanto, but he was a he was someone in agriculture, a PhD in agriculture, and he was speaking to farmers who were struggling. They were saying that oh, glyphosate is not working, uh, you know, at my farm, and and for some reason it doesn't seem to be working as well. And in this video, what he said was, which is just amazing, he said. You have to be careful that if you're mixing, when you're mixing your glyphosate with your water, if you have hard water, hard water means water that generally speaking has higher mineral content, specifically calcium. And so what's happening when the when the farmers were mixing the hard water with the glyphosate, the glyphosate was binding to the calcium, so it was no longer uh, it was losing its potency in the environment it was being put in to kill the bacteria and to kill the weeds. So in a way, he's trying to explain how they can get around that. They've got to treat the hard water first. But that was sort of my aha moment to think, so it really does work in the real world as a descaling agent. It, it's it's binding so hard to the calcium in the hard water that it's losing its effectiveness in the fields. So then you've got to think, what is it doing in my body? What is it doing in all the foods I'm eating and the animals that are eating it? So that's the that's the scary thing, right? These these chelating agents, they they work really well. and um, there was a paper in 2006 that showed the a decreased root uptake in plants, iron, manganese, zinc, that were sprayed with glyphosate. So this is a phenomenon in people, in plants, uh, in everything. So yeah, I just did. a cool little side note there. <laughs> it is a cool side note, but I think an important one that you know isn't often discussed when people talk about glyphosate. And there's, you know, a couple of resources I found were from the Detox Project. I'm not sure if you have looked into their stuff at all, but um, they they had a whole paper on it. Let me just see if I can share my screen here. Um, sure. Yeah, they had a they had a whole thing on it. I always love getting new resources, so this is this should be a good learning experience for me too. Yeah, can you see my screen here? Yep. Yeah. So they <clears throat> they said. Um, that glyphosate binds or chelates vital nutrients such as iron, manganese, zinc, boron in the soil, kind of what you were just saying, preventing plants huh? from taking them up. So GMO, GMO or GM, gene-manipulated soy plants treated with glyphosate have lower levels of essential nutrients and reduced growth yes. compared with GM and non-GM soy controls not treated with glyphosate. Lower nutrient mm. uptake may particular or may partly account for the increased susceptibility of GM soy to disease as well as its lower yield. So it, yeah, it makes the even the GM soy not you know not work as well because huh. it's more more uh, uh, susceptible to diseases and whatnot. And they also say it could also have implications for humans and animals that eat the crop, as it could affect nutrient value. So yeah, I think that's oh. that's pretty important. And they had they have all the resources in this and everything we're going to talk today about. At least from my side, I'm going to link in the show notes. If you have some papers you want to share, I'd love to link them there too. So if someone wants, I got to a lot of deeper, papers. Yeah, I got I got six pages of notes, my friend. So you can have them all. Heck yeah, <laughs> yeah. But um, it, it, yeah, it, it and, is an important side note. It is, and then when you think about, I mean, this is probably a good transition into what glyphosate is used on. And so here's from the EPA's own data in 2015, they say almonds, soybeans, cotton, corn, figs, grapes, lemons, oranges, pistachios, sugar beets, sunflowers, walnuts. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty much everything. And then when you look at uh, the environmental working group, they do a lot of 
research on glyphosate and they're always trying to they're testing products in the supermarket they're pulling uh supermarket items off the shelf and they're testing them and just a quick rundown so this is this is a list of all the products and the percent of samples that that were tested positive for glyphosate so in the pizza that they tested 90% tested positive for glyphosate in wheat flour 88% crackers 84% pasta 84% oats 75% chickpea flour 70% lentils 67%. And there was just a big article maybe a few months ago about glyphosate and hummus, a lot of hummus because chickpeas. Yeah, I saw, I saw so, the, uh, the Whole Foods hummus, actually, their own brand had a ton of glyphosate in it. Yeah. And, you know, I think you mentioned this before, too, that um, it's not just used on, um, I'm trying to see, I had a, a list of other, yeah, so it's it's used in other places, too. So it's not just props it's used in parks and playgrounds and golf courses it's used as a desiccant to be able to especially in places like canada to harvest the crop before the freeze because it helps dry the crops out so I think even sometimes you know if they're not if they're not if it's and, I, and i'm not sure about this but i don't i think even an organic crop can be desiccated with glyphosate i don't quote me on that part i'm not sure but um it's just being used in a lot of different ways yeah i mean it was it was patented as an antibiotic uh, in 2010, so that makes sense why they would use it in like playgrounds and all that. You know, um, we have a ton of antibiotic usage. Like if you're buying furniture, a new car, there's they spray that stuff down with all sorts of antibiotics these days. And um, then the desiccant thing, I think that's that's a huge issue. Um, probably why we find glyphosate in all these crops is because of that and especially the grains so um, mm -hmm. just to back up quick what they basically do is they literally before harvest spray all the plants all the crop to death so that they can harvest it all at once and because you know nature i mean i'm doing a garden right now some veggies of the same type are, har are har harvestable earlier than others and whatnot but in this case they want it for mass production industrial use they need to harvest at a certain time so they just spray it all down and right before harvest and that makes sense then that there would be a ton of glyphosate on it because it's being used right before harvest and then it's gone to the processing facilities and whatnot yeah that's where it really pays mm. to when you're trying to solve this puzzle i think it's really beneficial to have people of multiple disciplines. So I try to talk to farmers and I try to talk to, you know, ever, you know, I, I'm a nutritionist, so I'm a, approaching this from a biochemistry perspective. So a lot of the research I look at is, is, you know, like we're going to get into next is talking about mitochondria and things that sometimes people, they don't find that practical, even though I promise if you, if you read enough about the mitochondria, you realize it's at the root of all human disease. So, it, it, and it's very susceptible to environmental cues, both positive and negative. So, so in a way, there is a lot you can do to improve the health of your mitochondria and to negatively impact. So I do think that this is applicable, but I like to talk to people in various fields because they give me so much information about, like you were just talking about, just just the desiccate, uh, the desiccant uh, use in the fields. I had no clue about that. I read an article and then I talked to a few people about it and they we're talking about it in Canada and, and uh, that's how you learn things. You know, you just, we have to put our collective experiences and education together in order to figure out this problem. And I think it's a real, I, I mean, I think it, so far we've all, we've already established it, that this might be a problem. We haven't even gotten into the biochemistry 
and how it could negatively affect your mitochondria. So yeah, I think that's a, I think it's important to have a collection of minds working on the problem. Hundred percent with all of this. <clears throat> And to my question, you know, uh, one of the ones I had while doing the research was like, does this stuff persist in the environment? And I did mm -hmm. find that like the half-life is relatively short. <clears throat> Have you looked into that a lot? Like that it, the half-life can, yeah. can be, you know, it, it varies. What, it does. That's what they say. But so I found a really interesting lecture by a guy named Don Huber. I, I don't know if you I've research glyphosate long enough. Yeah, you'll come across him. He's sort of a... He's just been doing this for a really, really long time, and he knows glyphosate maybe better than anybody. Maybe maybe Stephanie Seneff might be the only other person who knows more about glyphosate. They've both published a ton of papers. And so he said the residual life ranges from 1.5 to 22 years, and he personally found evidence of glyphosate in soil in Australia 20 years after its application, that they could, wow. between the glyphosate itself and its metabolites, they could account for all of the glyphosate applied 20 years later. Wow. So I think I think the answer is that the the earth is not a closed system and it's such a diverse environment and there are so many factors that we can't possibly account for and that we probably will never fully understand because of the complexity of nature and I think that's what leads to the fact that it's 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 persistence in the soil is so variable from again from 1.5 to 22 years was what i found so i mean again good luck trying to trying to pin that down yeah <laughs> I mean, it's through science it's kind of all over the place you know yeah and then also uh one of my podcast listeners and followers on instagram antonin um he made me aware of um you know glyphosate being super water soluble and yes binding to water so what what can happen is that, or what happens is that it evaporates, gets into the air, and what they're finding is a lot of glyphosate at like the poles, you know, south and north pole, mm -hmm. in areas where we're not really growing food, we're not really using glyphosate, but it's there because it travels with the air, and um, it bioaccumulates up there in in like massive amounts. So yes. I thought that was really interesting, and and I mean, it's a, that, it's a great point. And I did find one paper on this topic, which is really interesting. And just just in terms of, it, it is incredibly water soluble. And that's one of the reasons why I found a paper that talked about applications. So they tested different uh, applications and to figure out which which applications were more likely to disperse it into the environment. And they said a spray fraction might remain in the air, be transported by the wind affecting the air and the rain quality from agricultural and urban areas. So they found that the, 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 you know, you see it often sprayed from planes and, you know, those, and that makes sense. Those applications are far worse. They also tested ones on the, the sort of backpack version where someone's just spraying it with a little trigger gun. Those tend to be far less likely to get up into the, you know, up into the rain. Although again, if it's, if you're talking about runoff and then evaporation, there's still some getting in there. I mean, this stuff is a nightmare. Having a water-soluble chemical on a planet that is mostly water is a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> so your your listener is very wise to be concerned about that. Um, and we can talk about this maybe at the end, some of the mitigation strategies. But yeah, I mean, that was something that I found uh, that I thought was pretty pretty troubling, if you ask me. Yeah, 100%. So... It's definitely persistent in the environment. They're still spraying a ton of it. It's the most used herbicide in the world. I looked in a map. Thank God, like Montana here is kind of 
kind of in the safe zone, it looks like. They're not really spraying much here. Um, but mm-hmm. like in the Midwest, where I used to live, Wisconsin, like all the big monocrop um, places, yeah, yeah, it's it's all over. And uh, all over the world, really. So let's talk about a bit, you know, the, the science and just like how it affects human health or what we know or just life forms in general. And I think here it might also be good to maybe talk a bit about the you know ex- the the dosing like the the tolerance levels that the EPA has set mm. and how there's maybe nuance or how there is nuance there because other groups have set other limits um, and there's a lot of discussion over what is really toxic right yeah that's a good point that, so I went to the EPA's website mm. and they have established levels of tall they say established tolerance for safe use of glyphosate. The EPA has established tolerances for glyphosate on a wide range of human and animal food crops, including corn, soybeans, oils, oil seeds. So funny, oil seeds, I guess we call them seed oils, but oil seeds, grains, some fruit and vegetables. The thing is, they don't specify which ones and they just give me the range. So on their website, they say, and this is similar to the to its persistence in the environment. I have point from point one to 400 parts per million is the EPA's tolerance for safe use. Now, as we sort of segue into the the research on how it affects the mitochondria, again, I'm going to go back on my bias and say, you can tell me that there's a safe range of this chemical, but as far as I'm concerned, and my advice to clients and my advice to the public at large when I educate is the least, the you know, the the least amount you can be exposed to, the better. The, the As low as that number can be. Don't feel like if something has 400 parts per million that you're, that you're perfectly safe because that's within the EPA's, um, you know, tolerance for safe use, uh, you know, <laughs> range. Because the truth is, I see this with labs all the time. A lab range is very often misleading when it comes to health. So I just caution people when they see these, you know, I, you know groups like the Environmental Working Group, um, I don't have the number off the top of my head, but I know they use a much lower parts per million range to be safe. And I would always err on the lowest number possible. So when you're looking at this stuff, you know, you just do your best to mitigate this as much as possible because I don't think any amount is safe, um, especially again when we get into the biochemistry. Because as I told you at the beginning, it's it is part glycine, the amino acid glycine. And so there's a ton of debate right now in the literature as to whether or not glyphosate can substitute for glycine, the amino acid, in protein structures in the human body. Oh, wow. There's a lot of evidence that it can. And there's mm. some evidence that that sort of the detractors say that it can't. Um, I'm still digging through that literature. It's very, very complex. Uh, but if it can incorporate into wherever glycine belongs, that represents a whole host of problems for the human body because glycine also happens to be one of the three amino acids that make up glutathione, which is the body's endogenous internal master antioxidant. So if you're if you're replacing glycine with glyphosate at any level, you could be compromising your own body's antioxidant capacity. Yeah, because so, like just because it would be used instead of glycine doesn't mean that that protein's gonna function normally, right? Exactly. Yeah. In fact, likely when you substitute even one one non-toxic protein in other words even even a even just an incorrect pro uh, an incorrect amino acid 
in a in a genetic mistake a single point mutation a change of an amino acid in a protein structure can completely change its function holy moly so, that would be nuts yeah i mean that's, that's it's right <laughs> so you have to be very very careful and that's where you know that's where the cancer thing comes from you know uh misfolded proteins um lots of uh, neurodegenerative diseases come from misfolded proteins so we have to be very very careful when it comes to protein structure because in pr with proteins structure dictates function so if you mess with a protein structure you're messing with its function wait we have to be careful but we sprayed 3.5 billion pounds of it since 1974 <laughs> yeah that's yeah we should crazy. have been a little more careful <laughs> yeah. friend, i think <laughs> um yeah i just want to touch real quick on the the um, uh, tolerance levels you mentioned from the epa yeah so the 0.1 to 400 parts per million that's the same as a hundred to four hundred thousand parts per billion, um, and a lot of the other groups that are like the EWG, the Environmental Working Group, they use way lower levels. So theirs is, from what I wrote down, was one hundred sixty parts per billion. So not per million per billion for them. Got it. Um, way less. Yeah, way less. But they have also looked at like they have scientists looking at the literature, and they have come up with those numbers. So I wonder, like, where you know why. Why is the EPA number so much higher than a lot of these other environmental groups? And, um, you know, who's looking at the right science? I don't know. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, you know, I always go back to better safe than sorry, always err yeah. on the side of caution and, um, you know, the lower the better. I mean, I, I would imagine that they're using different sets of literature in terms of you know, they're probably doing in vitro cell culture and they're just testing to see you know well here's the thing you know you're testing for certain biomarkers of toxicity so if you choose a different biomarker that biomarker may be raised or lowered by different concentrations so yeah i mean it really it, there's so much nuance in this people have to understand that as rigorous as science is um there's still a lot of room for interpretation so and i find that with a lot of the things that i talk about which is why some people get really upset that i can't give them specifics but i i always say you know that's just not what science is our best method of explaining the world around us but it is by no means perfect and it is by no means complete right you know uh we only have access to the knowledge we have at the time and um you know if you, if you go back a hundred years people would think some of the things that we do today would be magic yeah you know some of the things that we take for granted uh so it, everything evolves and in a hundred years when we're gone people may be looking at glyphosate and laughing at us because we didn't know x y or z Right, and then and that's just the way it is. And then there's also this like question of low dose exposure. Is that going to do something? Mm -hmm. And I think that's yep. a way more important question to ask than like how much of of like glyphosate at once is going to harm you because no one's going to just sit there hopefully and drink a glass of glyphosate water. Like it's it's these little doses that we're getting throughout the day from food, drinking water, the air, and how is that all adding up? Right, and I did find one mm -hmm. study. Um, that from 2015 called transcriptome profile analysis reflects red liver and kidney damage following chronic ultra low dose roundup exposure so roundup again is i did read that yeah and uh, roundup mm -hmm. is the pesticide uh, herbicide that has glyphosate as the active ingredient yeah and they said in their conclusions it was like a two-year study a rat study and it was 0.1 parts per billion so a low dose and um it, they said in their conclusion that our results su suggest that chronic exposure to glyphosate 
based herbicides in an established laboratory animal toxicity model system at an ultra-low environmental dose can result in liver and kidney damage with potential significant health implications for animals and human populations. So I think that's the more important question to really figure out with science is like, what is this low-dose exposure doing to us? And so I read that paper because you, you, I had not mm. seen it prior to the show notes that you sent me, and I, it was a great read, so I appreciate you sending that along. And so I honed in on the mitochondrial element of it because I have other, I have other research on, on glyphosate's impact on mitochondria, but I love the fact that this was low dose. And for the people that will say this is animal research, I do also want to say, when you're talking mitochondria and electron transport chain and Krebs cycle, the this is one area where I do think animal research can inform human data because the mitochondria, the electron transport chain, these are evolutionarily conserved mechanisms in almost all living things. So these work the same way in humans as they do in animals. So you're not talking about you know a comp- some novel element of a of an of a rat f- liver physiology. You're talking about the the basics of energy production of life on Earth. So mitochondria are universal, and so while it's not perfect correlation, and that's why I always go for in animal studies. I always look for what the effect of is on the mitochondria because I feel like that's much more applicable to humans. So I just want to put that out there because it, that is important when looking at things mechanistically. And so from that same paper. What I took from that was respiratory chain complex one and TCA cycle or Krebs cycle were most were mo- mostly downregulated. And so, when you're producing energy in the body, I'll, I'll give like a real quick high level biochemistry lesson. Your food doesn't directly become energy until it is metabolized. It is broken down by enzymes and cofactors and all kinds of different things. But ultimately, all your food—carbohydrates, fats, proteins—all become a molecule called acetyl CoA. Acetyl-CoA is the entry point to what's known as the TCA cycle, the Krebs cycle. Um, it's got way too many names, but it's all the same thing. Um, and the the TCA cycle produces intermediates that are then handed off to the inner mitochondrial membrane where the electron transport chain exists. And the electron transport chain is just simply a series of four protein complexes, and they're named one, two, three, four, <laughs> and then five, the final complex is also known as ATP synthase. That is the that is a pump that actually creates energy in the form of ATP, adenosine triphosphate. So that's how your food, through a series of biochemical processes, becomes energy. And so what this paper is saying is that The low-dose exposure to glyphosate is interrupting respiratory chain complex 1. So that's the very first protein complex in the electron transport chain that starts the energy process. And it's also interrupting enzymes, several enzymes actually, and it actually names them, (laughs) several enzymes in the Krebs cycle. And the Krebs cycle is, is is the precursor to the electron transport chain that generates these what they're called reducing equivalents that allow the electron transport chain to create energy. So it's this it's this two-handed system of energy production, and low-dose glyphosate is actually interfering with both of these processes. And anything that creates mitochondrial dysfunction will end up 
creating disease, and it will manifest in various ways in people. We know it as diabetes or heart disease or cancer, but in the end, all of these things, I'm hard-pressed to find a disease, chronic disease, that does not have mitochondrial dysfunction at the root. So looking at mitochondrial dysfunction when it comes to glyphosate or any toxin or anything at all is what I do because I always want to know how is this incorporated into the mitochondria? How is it negatively or positively impacting the mitochondria? And that's just a, a more universal way of making a decision, especially in an animal model or in a cell culture model. So I hope that wasn't too much for people, um, but but that's that's really, really important to understand. And if you have to rewind it, you know, maybe look at, I when I was in school and I was learning this, I looked at a hundred videos on YouTube. I looked at diagrams. I just to like internalize this mechanism because it is the it is the blueprint of the human body. It is so important to understand that. Yeah, without the Krebs cycle, you're not getting energy. You're not lifting exactly. your arm or anything. You're not doing yeah. anything. <laughs> and nothing. This <laughs> study showed that it literally downregulates that whole process. What else mm -hmm. uh, have you found on glyphosate and its uh, relation to mitochondrial dysfunction? Sure. So. Um, so remember before we talked about it being a chelator. So two of the minerals in a in a 2013 paper, two of the minerals that were found um, in Roundup Ready feed that was fed to cows, they found the cows ended up becoming deficient in manganese and cobalt. So these are two plus two cations that I mentioned before that really bind well to glyphosate. So manganese is incredibly important because it makes up the molecule manganese superoxide dismutase. That is another mitochondrial-specific antioxidant. So without manganese, manganese superoxide dismutase can't form, and so it can't protect the mitochondria from oxidative stress. People probably know that term, oxidative stress. So wow. the mitochondria actually produce oxidative stress just through its normal, that whole process I just explained to you how energy is produced. A byproduct of just normal energy metabolism is a certain amount of reactive oxygen species. That's that's totally normal, and the body has ways of cleaning that up. One of those ways in the mitochondria specifically is manganese superoxide dismutase. So you can imagine that if glyphosate is binding up manganese and manganese superoxide dismutase cannot form, you're now making your mitochondria more susceptible to oxidative stress. Wow. So that's another one. That's nuts. And a lot of our lifestyle choices and The food we eat today is all adding to that oxidative stress. Sure um, is. The seed oils and whatnot. Um, yeah, that's nuts. Mm -hmm. um, manganese superoxide dismutase not only protects the mitochondria um, along the electron transport chain, but it also protects a specific enzyme in that Krebs cycle. Um, the enzyme is called aconitase. And um, so, so now you're getting they're getting sort of both ends of the of the issue with glyphosate. You're damaging the the cleanup crew, but you're also damaging iconotase, which is part of energy production. So again, we've got that same that same issue. It can also alter membrane potential. So this gets really technical. But when I told you the on the inner mitochondrial membrane, that's where the electron transport chain sits. So the way energy is produced is. A, an electrochemical gradient is created through pumping hydrogen protons into, into the intermembrane space and creating this imbalance of hydrogen. There's more hydrogen up top, less hydrogen on the bottom, and nature always wants to balance. So this membrane, though, is there to keep that charge separated so that the pump, ATP synthase or complex 5, can actually generate the energy. 
So what glyphosate does is it disrupts membrane potential. It's called the protonophore. What that allows to happen is for hydrogen protons to sneak through the membrane without going through ATP synthase and generating energy. So you're actually losing potential energy. Wow. I know that's a lot. I know that's a lot. But essentially what I'm saying is this is just another separate mechanism by which energy production is compromised by glyphosate, not just in the Krebs cycle, not just in the protein complexes of the electron transport chain, but in the membrane itself. The membrane becomes leaky to these protons that's um at glyph- you know with, with glyphosate exposure so that's that's another concerning thing oh yeah that sounds very concerning it just adds to the whole uh idea of it disrupting the whole system of the mitochondria and like you said the mitochondria mm-hmm. is so important and mitochondrial dysfunction is now linked to all these chronic diseases that we're seeing so it's another toxin another thing in our environment around us that's making that issue worse it's kind of wild and the other, just the other uh, mineral that I mentioned from that paper was manganese. It was cobalt, mm-hmm. and cobalt, very, very simply, is the center of the B12 molecule. So if you're binding cobalt, you're going to have a hard time assembling B12, and you could end up with a B12 deficiency. So again, that's not d- directly mitochondrial related, but um, B12 does have some antioxidant properties. Uh, B12 has been shown to help restore glutathione. Remember I mentioned before, glutathione is the body's master antioxidant, and it can actually relieve some of the oxidative stress brought on by glyphosate. But if glyphosate is binding cobalt, B12 can't form, and then B12 can't protect <laughs> glutathione. So it's this sort of vicious cycle. So the these are how important, and we've only talked about two minerals, but that's just how important two minerals that you may not have even have heard of. You know, most people know magnesium and most people know calcium, but we just talked about cobalt and manganese and how how critical they are for mitochondrial function and how they are, have been shown to bind to glyphosate. So it's a it's a real it's a real problem when you start to get into the deep biochemistry. And that's what I don't see a lot of people, influencer type people doing. They just they just go really high level, but to understand the negative impact, I think you have to go a lot deeper than that. 100%. You need that nuance, especially in science. And with glyphosate, there seems to be all this nuance. I mean, this is just one of the things. The other one I wanted to talk about was the gut microbiome, and you kind of touched on it uh, at the very beginning. But that one mm-hmm. to me is like a huge red flag. Like mm-hmm. they say, again, the claim is that only glyphosate only harms the plants. Because the plants have this shikimate pathway, but so do the bacteria and so do fungi. And um, there is evidence now in, I think, both human and animal models that it's affecting the uh, the gut microbiome. Um, and I, I saw one study from these German scientists that I think they tested 0.1 parts per billion of glyphosate. Uh, and that had, which again is kind of a low dose, and it had the potential to destroy the beneficial gut bacteria while pathogenic gut bacteria were resistant to it, which is a, uh, I mean, yes. that's kind of wild. So the good guys died, the bad guys were able to survive. And that creates a whole, I'm so glad you mentioned that because that's something else that very often gets mm. um, sort of swept under the rug. You know, it's either, it either is or isn't harmful for bacteria. Well, what if it's the worst case scenario and it's killing off, and this is the actual scenario, that lactobacillus, which is needed for manganese, uh, uh, which need manganese for antioxidant protection, lactobacillus also, uh, they produce um, 
Butyrate, which is a short-chain fatty acid and an incredibly important short-chain fatty acid for the colonic cells to be able to use. So, And when lactobacillus is depressed, simultaneously, clostridium and salmonella strains have been shown to be resistant to glyphosate. And when that happens, you actually start to throw off this balance of propionate and butyrate. These are two short-chain fatty acids that exist in a balance in the gut. But when you're killing off lactobacillus, which produce butyrate, and you're allowing, or or I shouldn't say allowing, but the, the salmonella and clostridium seem to be resistant to glyphosate, we're having more propionate produced. They, an imbalance in propionate and butyrate has actually been shown in autism, oh, which wow. is super interesting. I wrote an entire substack if you're interested on, it's called the propionate autism connection. And it goes deep into the biochemistry of this. And the other thing that lactobacillus does, or lack of lactobacillus, I should say, is produce symptoms of anxiety. And how much do we see that in society today? Both autism so, and, and anxiety, right? Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. So you're you're absolutely spot on to be bringing that up. This 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 destruction of the beneficial bacteria while simultaneously, um, you know, lactobacillus also synthesizes folate. So remember before I mentioned that cobalt, which was the center of the B12 molecule, was bound to glyphosate. And if now you're killing off lactobacillus to produce folate, which is vitamin B9, vitamin B9 and vitamin B12 are both critical in methylation pathways. So now you may be compromising your methylation pathway because glyphosate is doing all these things, again, simultaneously. And even if it's doing it to a, a minuscule degree, you're just, you're, you're, it's your allostatic load. It's you, the amount of toxin, the dose makes the poison, right? So you are consuming all of these foods and eventually that load of glyphosate adds up and adds up. And that's why in some of these studies where they test and they say, oh, well, you know, this really didn't appear to have much of an effect. But I say, well, how much glyphosate is in your water? How much glyphosate is in your food? How much glyphosate is in the air? You need to know what your glyphosate burden is to be able to feel okay with somebody telling you that, well, it only happened a little bit in somebody. You know, it's the same thing with artificial sweeteners or anything else you consume. If you're consuming a lot of something, that, that toxic load is being added. And so um, it's a great point. The, the gut microbiome, leaky gut, all of these things, and upregulation and zonulin, which causes your gut to open up, and so many papers pointing to glyphosate's um, detrimental effects on the gut. That seems to be less controversial than the other, you know, than the mitochondrial element, but um, still very, very important. Yeah, and that makes me question what is it doing to the cell microbiota, you know? Like, mm -hmm. I, I don't know if that's even been studied enough. I think we don't even understand the cell microbiome enough, you know, to really draw good conclusions there. So I'm sure it's no, messing right. with all sorts of things there. Yeah, yeah and um, we mentioned, let me just see what else I had. Oh, yeah, so glyphosate has also been shown to suppress uh, cytochrome enzymes in the liver. And CYP enzymes in bioacid synthesis, specifically CYP27A. That has been identified as identical to the mitochondrial vitamin D activating enzyme. So if it's disrupting that particular CYP enzyme, that could also explain partially some of the epidemic of vitamin D deficiency we have in the Northeast. I mean, I think a lot of that is also the fact that we're never outside in the sun and everything. But again, just another paper saying, hey, you know, 
the the vitamin D activating enzyme in the mitochondria is identical to the one that is suppressed in bile acid synthesis that is suppressed by glyphosate. So just another, I just want to throw things out there because if people are suffering from chronic low vitamin D, but they haven't really assessed their glyphosate burden, it might be worth getting a, a cheap urine test. You know, those, those, I know we'll talk about this at the end, but the urine tests for glyphosate are like a hundred bucks. Yeah. And it's, it's like, you can either try to control your environment obsessively, which I do, but there's no way you can. I mean, you're you're we all live on on the planet. And we're gonna be we're gonna be exposed to things. So the best thing you can do is test yourself and see if you can figure out, you know, where some of the you know are some of your mitigation strategies working or are some of them not working. And so um, that's just something else I recommend to people to figure out where you are um, on the on the glyphosate burden scale. I think people would be uh, surprised. <laughs> I mean, I found one, I think it was by the EWG or the, it was the detox project where they, uh, I'm just reading from my notes here, but they were saying they had scientific papers to back it up. And again, this will be all in the show notes, but they said from 1993 to 2016, glyphosate levels in humans increased by an alarming 1,208%. Mm. It's a 20-year study um, that was done in California. And uh yeah. Most people had an increase of like 500%. And uh, yeah, some people were at 1,208% of, of glyphosate in their in their urine. That's nuts. It's, it's scary. And, and I mentioned before, there's onulin. You know, that's that's a protein in the gut that helps control tight junctions. And if you if you know the term, your audience probably knows the term leaky gut, right? Yep. That's a pretty common term for intestinal permeability. When, when you take food in, the gut is supposed to allow molecules only of a certain size and a certain type through the gut barrier into the bloodstream. So what, what glyphosate is doing by upregulating this protein zonulin is it's causing an inappropriate uh, spreading of these tight junctions in between the cells. And so that allows all kinds of pro proteins that are too large, molecules that are not supposed to be in the bloodstream. And then guess what that does? That invokes an immune response. Of course, of course the body's going to react to a protein that should have been smaller, digested or something, you know, something's not right. So it, it immediately invokes an immune uh, response. And that immune response I've seen many times, if left unchecked, can lead to autoimmunity. In other words, the immune system is on overdrive and eventually it starts to turn against its own tissue. And that many times is the root of autoimmune conditions, is a leaky gut. So yep. when people have autoimmune conditions, I say, you've got to clean up your diet. You've got to go fully organic. You've got to, you know, eat, eat more meat. I know we're going to talk about that because meat tends to bioaccumulate glyphosate significantly less than all other crops, uh, all other food. So you're going to be better off eating meat. Um, you've got to do a lot of things, you know, to tighten up that, those tight junctions again, and then hope the body can calm down that autoimmune response but it's a very serious thing i know a lot of people who have autoimmune conditions and they they have not and but they're still eating gluten-free pasta thinking that that's going to fix it but if the gluten you know if the gluten-free pasta is still like glyphosate on it it's not going to make a difference yeah so and it makes sense that there is a correlation with glyphosate there because i mean so many people are eating you know all these ultra processed foods and they're made with the grains and like we talked about earlier all the grains basically even in some cases organic due to drift of herbicide and whatnot um are right. affected and i mean some of the tests they've been doing the last few years it's like a lot of the children's cereals 
are just loaded yes. with glyphosate. And that's really concerning because mm-hmm. like, what is it doing to a young child growing, growing body, right? And, um, and there's all this like, cancer concern in the, in the news the last mm-hmm. few years too and i want to touch on that real real quick because there was just kind of like almost like a little cover-up not a little cover-up a cover-up going on right can you touch on that a little bit yeah sure so let me read from this this was a this was a lawsuit and some the i believe it was u.s right to know got some some private emails uh from the director of environmental assessment and toxicology these were internal memos so so let me just set the stage in 1985 the epa classified glyphosate as a a class c carcinogen uh, which means suggestive evidence of carcinogenic potential six years later um it was moved to a class e uh which is evidence of non-carcinogenicity, carcinogens, carcinogenicity in humans. I hate that word. Words in um, general, man. <laughs> words in general, yeah. Um, and this change occurred, this change in classification occurred during the same period that Monsanto was developing its first Roundup-ready crops. So mm. we, we, met, we touched on this a little bit earlier. So this was very suspicious. So here is the internal email that I think is pretty damning. Dr. George Le, uh, Levinskis, he was the director of environmental assessment and toxicology. And this is the quote Senior management at the EPA is reviewing a proposal to classify glyphosate as a class C pro- a possible human carcinogen because of kidney adenomas in male mice. Dr. Marvin Kushner will review the kidney sessions, uh, sections and present his evaluation of them to the EPA in an effort to persuade the agency that the Observed tumors are not related to glyphosate. <laughs> so he's unleashing his own doctors to reevaluate the data to persuade the EPA that this is not related to glyphosate. Notice he's not, in the, and these are in internal emails, so these are not for public consumption. He's not saying we need to figure out robust evidence of toxicology. We need to know whether this is causing. No, he's saying I'm sending one of my doctors to go out and to make sure that we convince the EPA that this has nothing to ensure enough. It was then moved uh, down in, in, in category to a class E. So I think that's just fantastically interesting because that also coincided with the development of the crops, which made me think they were just trying to kick the can down the road to get the the GMO crops into the food supply to eventually create this intellectual property. And now if it came out tomorrow that that we found out for sure, there's no doubt glyphosate causes cancer, no one would care except all the influencers who 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 drink it to to prove that it's not carcinogenic. Uh, and there was one doctor from University of Florida who actually oh, saw it, who actually yeah. did that. Uh, and by the way, he was paid. It was it found found in the lawsuit during discovery that he was paid by Monsanto, an unrestricted grant of $25,000. So that guy is, you know, full of it because, you know, I mean, I don't know what goes through these people's heads, but eventually the truth comes out. So he's a paid Monsanto guy. So he says, he swears up and down that it's safe and he drinks it and that's ridiculous. You know, I don't think he actually believes it, but he made a big spectacle of himself on social media uh, on a few podcasts. And I remember looking him up thinking, oh, well, isn't that interesting? Not for a million dollars could you get me to drink a glass of Not for a million dollars. But yeah. yeah, so that's the cancer. Really sad because, you know, you think about, and now you think about all these lawsuits that, you know, they, they've been, 
Monsanto now bear they they have been paying out the wazoo for all these cancer claims and trust me they these companies don't pay out if 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 the truth isn't isn't there and it's just it's really terrible and as i said mitochondrial dysfunction is at the core i mean dr uh Thomas Seafried always says cancer is a metabolic disease. It's not a genetic disease. And so if that's true, and I do believe that's true, then anything that causes mitochondrial DNA to mutate, anything that causes mitochondrial dysfunction is going to lead to cancer. And it seems that Monsanto knew that back in the 80s and they didn't care. And they just wanted to get this product, the seed product to market and then let the chips fall where they may. Because very often... Bears is actually guilty of this too. Very often they know something is dangerous and it's a purely a math calculation. In other words, we will get sued. People will find out. We will pay millions of dollars in damages, but the profit we will make in the meantime will far outweigh the money we will have to pay. And so to them, you and I are just numbers on a on a spreadsheet. They don't think about the human toll. They just think about the financial cost. It's just a cost-benefit analysis. And that's ruthless, but it's true. Yeah. Unfortunately. And I found another cool article, I link in the show notes, it's too long to get into now, but basically this uh, team of journalists looked at like public papers from the EPA and how Monsanto was really involved in, you know, making sure glyphosate stays on the market. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, yeah, that was, that's a pretty disturbing one and definitely one to check out if you want to if you're listening right now and want to look more into it and yeah, the cancer yeah. thing, I found several like reviews and studies where, you know, th there's concern about this causing cancer. Um, and it, I think it makes sense with what you're saying with how it, you know, affects the mitochondria and whatnot. And then other issues, you know, maybe we'll get into this in, the, in a part two sometime, but other issues I know are is it can affect uh, there's new research you mentioned to me about the blood brain barrier right mm -hmm. and then it affecting testosterone levels and whatnot i don't know if we have time to yes. still get into that now if you want to i i'm cool you with give going a teaser a yeah if you want to give a little teaser <laughs> why I, not yeah um, so the, the the bottom line with testosterone is that it disrupts the first step in testosterone production. So there's a protein called the STAR protein, which stands for steroidogenic acute regulatory protein. It's the rate limiting step in steroidogenesis, the creation of testosterone. And it helps in the transfer of cholesterol, which is the, the raw material for testosterone. Don't let anybody tell you cholesterol is bad for you. It's the raw material for testosterone. And this star protein helps bring cholesterol from the outer to the inner mitochondrial membrane where the testosterone production begins. And so glyphosate directly disrupts that protein. So you're stopping testosterone production before it even begins. Interesting. So that's, you know, yeah, I've done whole talks on testosterone and I think it's multifactorial. I think it's the fact that we don't get exposed to true light anymore. We don't eat, you know, we, we think low fat diets are healthy. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that contribute, um, not enough resistance training, but but glyphosate definitely there's a biochemical mechanism to by which glyphosate interrupts the generation of uh, testosterone. So that's that's pretty that's just, pretty remarkable. Yeah, and just another thing to add to the list, right, of things you could do. <laughs> just another thing. <laughs> 
to add to the list. Uh, the blood-brain barrier uh, is, yeah, for the first time, it's been shown that it can cross the blood-brain barrier, glyphosate, and it raises something called uh, tumor, tumor necrosis factor alpha, which is uh, involved in neuroinflammation, and it's been linked to diseases like Alzheimer's disease and things like that. So if, if glyphosate can cross the blood-brain barrier, which we now know that it can, and TNF-alpha is upregulated, um, we're going to need a lot more research on what it can do. So that's just a quick little side note on that. There's not a lot of research on that. That's a relatively new paper, uh, but it's very scary if that molecule can cross the blood-brain barrier because the blood-brain barrier is so fickle. Yeah, uh, it's not supposed to, you know. But that just that goes to show you my original point about man-made products. We just don't, we can't foresee sometimes the downstream consequences that will occur, even if we're trying to do the right thing. Even if you give the, everyone the benefit of the doubt, we're trying to feed the world. We still have to be careful with the moves that we make because we don't fully understand the human body. We certainly don't understand the ecosystem in which we live on Earth fully. And to understand all of the potential downstream consequences of an intervention, we just we just we just can't know all the unknowables. Hundred percent, yeah. That's that's the biggest thing with with all this, and that's why I brought up the you know this attention to nuance and science that we really need to pay you know be be aware of and whatnot. The nuances, mm -hmm. and and even though you know we think we have all the answers, we really don't. We really don't. I mean, that's like you said. <laughs> that's what science is about. Uh, is about, and. You know, the biggest thing, though, besides the gut microbiome and, and some of the other things I've mentioned that really shocked me when I dove a bit into this myself was um, this uh, study I found on the, the adjuvants, you know, the additives and how yeah. that actually looked at like the pesticide or herbicide formulation and not just at the active ingredients. So we've been talking about glyphosate, which is the herbicide or the active ingredient in the herbicide Roundup. There's all these other herbicides out there besides just glyphosate, by the way, not to freak you out even more. But um, this study was specifically looking at like the whole package, not just the glyphosate, but Roundup and then, you know, glyphosate and all the other chemicals that are in there. And I'm just going to pull it up real quick yeah. and share my screen here because I thought this one was, yeah, pretty remarkable in, in what they found or in what they were saying about it. So here's the, it's called major pesticides are more toxic to human cells than they declared their declared active principles. So the active principles are the things like glyphosate, the main like ingredient in there, right? And mm -hmm. um, here, let me just find it. Today, I don't want to read the whole abstract, but they said that most importantly at the end of the abstract here, Eight formulations out of nine, so eight out of pestis or pesticide or herbicide um, formulations they tested out of the nine were up to 1,000 times more toxic than their active principles. Our results challenged the relevant, uh, relevance of the acceptable daily intake for pesticides because this norm <laughs> is calculated from the toxicity of the active principle alone. Chronic tests on pesticides may not reflect relevant environmental exposures if only one ingredient of these mixtures is tested alone. And they do talk about glyphosate specifically here too. And uh, yeah, so this this I thought was super interesting because, you know, all the science that we just discussed and that the literature talks about glyphosate, but what about all this other stuff that they're adding into the Roundup that they're spraying, that people are spraying on their lawns and that I guess some of, a lot of these adjuvants, these additives are confidential. Like we don't even know what's really in there. Right. 
Well, I mean, doesn't that speak to the point we just made about you just can't possibly know the unknowables? And if you keep trying to play around with Mother Nature, eventually you're going to get bit. Yeah. Um, and and all you know on that point, I know that you had, had written something really quickly on this, but something on on bees. Yeah. Right. The the so I've pulled this because this had the same sort of um, idea. The the inert substances that can be highly toxic. Um, in you know in the formulation of roundup you know the other ingredients and it, they were shown to block bees breathing capacity uh some combinations had little effect but other herbicide formulations killed 96% of bees within 24 hours wow and it said bees exhibited 94% mortality with roundup ready to use and a 30% mortality with roundup proactive over 24 hours that's a huge difference so obviously it's not the glyphosate in this case obviously it's the other ingredients that speaks to your point and just a quick quote from the center for biological diversity um this important new study exposes a fatal flaw in how pesticide uh, pesticide products are regulated here in the united states and he said, now the question is, will the Biden administration fix this problem or allow the EPA to continue its past practice of ignoring the real-world harms of pesticides? No, the answer is no. They're not going to do anything about it. But but that's to your point. It's it's I get so hyper-focused on glyphosate because there's so much information. But the truth is, I've already convinced myself, and I should probably shift my focus to some other things because you know it's like beating a dead horse sometimes. How many posts can I write about glyphosate? I've written so many and they're all different, but it's like. Okay, I get it already. Like, I, you know, if you haven't been convinced by my writing on glyphosate yet, you're nothing's going to convince you. So, you know, I should probably just move on to something else. And and that paper that you just put on the screen was uh, even impacted me. Just thinking, geez, I got to start looking at some of these other things because uh, you know you run the risk of being a one trick pony. I don't want to be the glyphosate guy. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, but it, it's scary. I mean, that's what I you know why I've kind of prefaced the episode with I don't want to overwhelm people, but. You know, we yeah. hearing all this about glyphosate and then realizing, oh shit, like there's all these other chemicals and all these herbicides they're spraying that could be on my food and whatnot. It it's you know, it's scary. Yeah. It really is. And you know, even if you don't think glyphosate will harm you, uh, I think you should still care about its effects on the environment and our natural resources. Like um, yeah. you know, the runoff that we talked about in lakes and rivers affecting the the, the life in the water. Right and um, the the, har the pollinators, the bees harming those, the soil microbes, the weeds that it's intended to kill that are now getting resistant and mutating yeah. and growing, you know, outgrowing glyphosate's uh, eff effectiveness really, and all that. And then even if I saw a thing about from the EPA that they found that ninety three percent of endangered species and ninety six percent of their habitats are likely to be harmed or killed slash destroyed by glyphosate use. So even if you don't think it's going to harm you and, you know, you um, love nature, this is definitely not good for nature at all. <laughs> yeah. To your audience, you know, there are things you can do to mitigate and maybe that's the best way to sort of wrap it up. Yeah, I, yeah. I, you know, I don't want people to leave, you know, I don't want people to have to wait till a part two when we can get together again. Uh, but, but some, I'll just go down the list of some things and I, I can send the papers over but but there's actually quite a few things that you can do um yeah, I'd love things to like hear activated that. charcoal yeah things like activated charcoal uh now some of these directly degrade glyphosate and others um just upregulate the 
antioxidant properties of the body, which help mitigate some of the effects of glyphosate. So some are direct removal tools, and some are are just are just ways to help support the body, like vitamin C and E. They help regenerate glutathione. They uh, they they really are are good for that. Um, N-acetylcysteine is a is is great prior to exposure. Similar, I use this for for antibiotics. If someone's going to be in a course of antibiotics, I have them take N-acetylcysteine prior to antibiotic treatment. It tends to help mitigate the mitochondrial damage. Does the same thing for glyphosate. That's fantastic. Bentonite clay, fulvic acid, humic acid. These are binders that can help escort glyphosate out of the human body, activated charcoal, chlorella. Those are more binders. And then one of my favorites is something called acetobacter. It's a bacteria that can actually degrade glyphosate, not only in the human body, but your point before about the soil, it's actually, it actually was tested on soil glyphosate exposure. And if the concentration isn't too high, there is a threshold where it can no longer metabolize, it's just overwhelmed. But to a certain degree, Acetobacter can actually degrade glyphosate, which I think is so cool. And your audience will probably know these two foods that are super high in acetobacter. Uh, that would be apple cider vinegar and sauerkraut. Nice. So, yeah. So, you know, along with your, and meat tends to, as I said before, meat tends to not accumulate uh, as much mm. glyphosate. I've seen several papers. One paper found actually none in the 22 dairy and meat samples, which was great. You had mentioned organ meats. I haven't looked too much. I mean, if it's going to go anywhere, it would probably go into the fat tissue of an animal. Yep. That's why for me, if an animal isn't grass-fed, I or if I'm eating out at a restaurant, I'm not sure if the animal is grass-fed, I will always opt for the leanest cuts possible. Um, so Because the fat is where high-quality fat on a grass-fed animal is great to eat. Fat on a conventional animal that could have eaten something that's suspect, mm, I would just leave that aside. So that's like a little just on the road tip. If you can't control the meat, you don't know the sourcing, get the leanest cut possible, and that'll also limit your likely limit your glyphosate exposure. Same with pair that, that with some sauerkraut. And that, that? and that wild game, some good elk and and deer. You oh, know, those I mean, are there's usually no, very there's, lean. Absolutely, mm. yep. And you you pair that with some sauerkraut and some apple cider vinegar, and you are. You know, you are really going to be doing yourself, uh, you know, pretty good when it comes to glyphosate exposure. And then again, test. If you want to experiment, spend the hundred dollars. Test your urine. It's a urine test. You pee in a cup. You send it off to the lab, and then make some changes in your environment. And then test it again in six months and see what happens. You know, the fact that it's only a hundred bucks is not so bad, and it makes it doable if you're really concerned about your exposure. Um, I'm a about to run one of those tests myself so maybe before part two I'll, I'll get the results of that test and you know someone like me who is extremely aware of all this stuff but at the moment i live in a city so maybe that's better for me maybe that's worse who knows you know i'm going to be really interested to see what my own results come back with right yeah and then you had a big part like testing again and and like you said only a hundred bucks i mean compared to some other tests you can do out there that's really inexpensive um yeah and, you know, I think eating like organic fruit and vegetables is also a good strategy. There have been, mm -hmm. there has been glyphosate found on some organic foods due to just drift and, like you said, maybe some shady organic practices. Even better, grow yeah. it yourself, right? Like, then yes. you have total control over that. Uh, I read that re reverse osmosis water can actually fix or get rid of the glyphosate. Have you heard of that? I haven't, but you know, one of the filters that I know, are you familiar with Mike Adams? He goes by the Health Ranger. Uh -uh. That's his name. Uh -uh. 
Well, he runs a lab in Texas, and he's probably as maniacal as I am about this stuff. And he did this great little YouTube video, you can probably find it, where he tested all these water filters to see which ones could filter out glyphosate. And he found a handful that could, and I have no affiliation with any of these companies, but the one that I ended up buying was a Berkey filter. Um, they filter out glyphosate, which was that's fantastic. Cool. So so that's just a good thing. No, I'm not sure about the reverse osmosis. Probably it makes sense to me. I've not seen the research, but I would say if you're not doing anything for your water, you, you should start doing something with your water. Yeah. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a Berkey filter is great. It's just a gravity filter. You pour the water in the top and you take it out the spout and it removes PFOAs. It removes, you can get a wow. fluoride filter for it and it removes glyphosate. So I, I how, like Berkey filters. They're a little expensive, but it's water. How do you spell that? Uh, it's B-E-R-K-E-Y. Berkey. Okay. I'll Berkey. have to look into those. Yeah. yeah the, the whole yeah, water thing is. They're a, nice looking. They're like, they're, 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 Silver, uh, stainless steel, silver cylinders. So they, you know, around the house, they look nice, like an appliance. They look nice. Yeah, sweet. I'll look into those. And then, also, um, you know, obviously avoid the grains since those are so heavily sprayed. And you mm -hmm. know, I don't think we're really meant to be eating grains at, in mass amounts anyway. I, I'll sometimes have like some rice here and there, um, some like homemade sourdough bread. But for the most part, I think it's best to avoid those as much as you can. Along with that the ultra processed foods because they have most a lot of grain in them and and uh, sure have also been found to have good amounts of glyphosate in them and then there's actually even some foods that have not like some companies are putting a glyphosate residue free label on their on their packaged foods so that's something to to be aware of too and look for i think so i mean uh, you know if 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 the supporters mm. of glyphosate are so sure it's safe, then there should no one should oppose labeling. I mean, I, I'm a, I'm like you said at the beginning, I, you know, free market capitalists. I want people to, but the only way that works is if people are informed. And so, why I don't think it works right now is because there's too much opaqueness, right? There's just a lack of transparency in in the regulatory agencies and the companies that are making these products. So tell us what it is and let us make our own decision. I don't think that that is something that everybody should agree with unless you financially benefit from not knowing, yeah. right? The consumer, I mean, who would argue with that? You can consume glyphosate if you want, but I should also have the choice not to, right? That's all I'm saying. So just let us know. And uh, so I think that labeling is great. And I wish every, I wish it was, it was one of the only functions of the federal government. I think the federal government is way out of control, but something I would love to see them put their muscle on is, look, let's just real transparent labeling. I think that would be fantastic for all of us. I would agree. Yep. And as we get going to this world of more processed foods and even lab-grown meats now, stuff like that's just going to be more and more important. Um, so yeah, not not I'm not against labels at all. I think some of them are like misleading. You know, that's a whole other thing. But um, in 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 the grand scheme of things, scheme of things, I think they're a good thing. Yeah. So yeah, Jay, um, I yeah, I think that's a good point to end it for now uh, a lot of good info that we just discussed i, th I hope people listening uh, are more educated about glyphosate and its potential effects i hope they are re like realize that you know there's a lot of nuance in science and uh, you can't just always go with what some expert says because that expert might be bought off that expert might be might have some sort of bias so keep asking questions and uh, what i really want to see in the future with glyphosate is like 
studies on how our exposure adds up. I don't know if we can really do that, but like, you know, we've, it seems like they're like always saying, they're kind of testing one ingredient at a time, but we don't just eat mm. one ingredient, right? We make meals <laughs> out of many ingredients and then we also drink water with it and we breathe air. So our daily exposure is just, there are these tolerance levels, but it's like, how, how are you going to measure it, you know? And um, I think that's the biggest concern here and something that the EPA isn't really considering and, and um, yeah, a problem for sure. That's great. Great point. Great point. We don't, we don't eat foods in a vacuum and, uh, and very often the FDA is not doing their job looking at, they're supposed to, but they're not. I actually wrote an entire post about this. It's funny you brought it up the other day about that, that just, we're not doing, we're not, we're not even following the rules that are established. So I'm not advocating for more, legislation from the government i'm saying let's just follow the ones we have in the books and the world would be way way healthier yeah i would agree <laughs> so if we could just if we could just get to step one which would be to follow the rules i would be I, I think that would be a great place to start we can work from there right so i really really appreciate you coming on the podcast again i'm excited to do another one in the future i mean there's so many topics we could go into where can people find you uh how can they follow you and all that yeah, it was a it was great to be back with you again after all after all these years. Jeez, it's a long time. Uh, and uh, people, uh, so I'm pretty active in two places right now. So there's Instagram, which is Perpetual Health Co. Uh, I try to post there every day or or most days. And now Substack, which is perpetualhealth.substack.com. That one is just starting to build up. We have about a thousand people over there, which for a secondary platform is more than That's I imagined. Great. And, and it's so much fun. And and the thing about Substack is I can put links, I can put diagrams, I can put videos in the in the writings, I can audio video files, you know, I, so I'm doing a lot more over there. And if more people transition over there, the more people that show up, the more I'll do there. And I just feel like that platform is more, well, it's also censorship free. Um, and uh, there's just a lot more engagement. So I love that platform. But either of those places, follow me there and you'll You'll know everything that's going on in my life. Yeah. And I, uh, you really motivated me with the Substack. I think I'm going to start one too, just because of the, uh, the things you can do on there and the, the censorship part, you know, we all, it's yeah. kind of crazy how, I mean, as soon as you start talking about, you know, the anti-meat narrative and whatnot on Instagram, it seems like your engagement goes down and whatnot. And I think that's a it's common theme. Yeah. Uh, that's why I started Substack because I noticed that I was trapped at the same follower count for six months and I had been organically growing for three years. I mean, I could see the steady decline and the, uh, the steady rise. And all of a sudden I started getting a little controversial and this plateau happened for six months. And I was like, well, they put me in timeout and you have no way of knowing about the shadow banning. And so you know, the other thing about Substack is that people can support you. So if you start a Substack, people can buy you a cup of coffee, like three bucks a month, five bucks a month, and they can help support you. And that's, you know, I tell them all the time, I'm not taking money from any industry, from any corporations. You know, I am fully and completely, other than my day job, I'm fully and completely, uh, you know, publicly funded. And I I, I want to stay that way because I because then people will know they're getting the truth because they are the ones helping me pay the bills. And so they will always get the truth for me. They will never, they will never take, you know, catch me drinking glyphosate because Monsanto paid me, you know, $25,000, you know, it's, it's all reader funded. And so I want to, I want to keep it that way, which is why I, I love that, that platform. Yeah. Love it. Absolutely. And I will link everything into show notes uh, so people can find you there. And uh, yeah, man, really appreciate you coming on, like I said, and, and let's do it again.
Anytime, my friend, anytime. All right, we've come to the end of today's Year of Plenty podcast episode. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share the episodes with your friends. Don't forget, you can get 15% off at Montana Block, which is www.mtblock.com. Montana Block is now sponsoring the Year of Plenty podcast. They make handcrafted, American-made, and grain butcher blocks, wooden cutting boards, wooden knife holders like magnetic knife holders, and a bunch of other cool things. So check out their website again at www.emptyblock.com and use the code Year of Plenty for fifteen percent off. This way, you're supporting Montana Block, American made. You're helping me with the podcast, helping me produce this content, and you're getting a discount. So really, it's a win-win-win for everybody. And also, if you haven't already, leave that five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And make sure to send me a screenshot to my Instagram, which is at Poldy Wheeland, or to my email address, which is theyearofplenty at gmail.com. In return for leaving a review, I will send you my ebook with some of my favorite food preservation recipes in it. If you get a ton of value from the show, one more way to support it is by leaving a donation, either as a patron, you can become a monthly patron, and pay as little as $2 a month to support the show. Or you can go over to my Buy Me a Coffee page and leave a donation for however much you think this podcast is bringing you value. Finally, join my free monthly newsletter and I will send you monthly emails with more content that is complimentary to the podcast straight to your inbox. You can sign up for the newsletter at www.theyearofplenty.com newsletter. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, my friends, let's keep exploring real food together and keep striving for that year of plenty.